0: Get ready to
1: rock! 20th anniversary. Welcome to our GRTR at 20 podcast series. We've chatted to Todd Rundgren several times during our 20-year history, and at the end of March in 2005, we touched on various aspects of his career, including Patronette, his use of technology. The album *Liars*, which was released in two thousand and four, and here we start by asking him about his influences. I
0: uh, I didn't have a whole lot of disposable income. Well, my record player, <laughs> so it wasn't a lot of records. And my influences, you know, up until I was a fourteen, up until uh, I and everyone else discovered the Beatles, um, listen mostly to the music that. You know, my parents played in the house, in particular my father's kind of uh, contemporary classical and show music of the uh, uh, of the more highbrow kind, and uh, you know a few other things as well. He got he he got swept along for a little bit in the folk music craze, so he was buying well he was buying the Smothers Brothers because they were funny, and uh, yeah. was also buying like New Christie minstrels and things like that, you know. So there was uh, folk music, and that all came about, I guess, right before the Beatles. And that would have to be the first time I ever thought about purchasing records. Mm. So the very first record that I bought, I recall, was the Beatles' second American record, which was completely different. You know, the records between, in the early days between the English releases and the American releases were completely different collections of songs, um, with songs like Roll Over Beethoven and uh, I listened to that constantly, bought all the Beatles records that came out subsequent to that. And did expand my collecting a little bit, but it would be mostly, and ironically, or not ironically, uh, things like Dionne Warwick's first album, which was more or less uh, uh, the uh, stake in the ground by Bert Bacharach. You know, that suddenly everyone realized. It wasn't just Dale Warwick. There was this incredible songwriter guy. was born and grew up in Philadelphia, right there on the Mason-Dixon line, as it were. And if you got any further south, you would have sort of like rednecks and religious fanatics uh, uh, protesting any so-called white station, you know, that would mm. play uh, music by black artists. So I was fortunate enough to be uh, sort of right there where it, where it black, met, white, or whatever, you know. And you could hear a lot of that stuff on the radio. A lot of my audience um, has been there not for the entire duration of my career. They at least are at least, you know, contemporary by a half a generation, though. Uh, and, hey, my eyesight started going when I was in my mid-40s. Uh, and regardless of how youthful you were, um, you try to remain. You know, age is inexorable. So I look at those people, and at first I think, "Geez, I never expected to be playing for a bunch of stuff, no. And then I suddenly realize, you know, a lot of them are still younger than I am. Oh yeah, so they're all gray and stuff. Yes,
1: you know? the main thing is they appreciate the music, obviously, and they've grown up with that music, really. But 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 do you find a, a, a more perhaps mixed audience where you play in the states or or anywhere else, or, or do they generally? Is it generally an older audience that you play to?
0: well I you know I do have a fairly loyal core yeah I've been there for a long time and in particular cities yes it will be maybe you know the, one of the few times they get out and see a show um, there is uh, some you know an unusual phenomenon if you survive long enough which most um, most musicians don't most musicians careers are probably 10 years or less and uh, of the few that get up to you know four-year mark, like I do, have the advantage of um, those rabid older fans forcing their <laughs> children to come to the shows or having force-fed them the music since they were infants, you know, just as ingrained in them <laughs> as it is uh, in their parents. I think that, uh, all things considered, if you were a young and somewhat talented and outgoing person, thought you were going to be involved in the arts.
2: Nowadays,
0: I think kids would be more excited about either being involved in films or being involved in in game design. (laughs) (laughs) As opposed to to longing to be a musician the way that everybody and his brother did in the 60s. And, you know, that's probably smart because the the music business isn't in its halcyon days right now. We're in uh, a sort of a uh, a musical dead calm right now, where there's nothing exciting happening, and the more exciting things are happening in other media, you know, in other arts. Um, you're, you know, even being like a more traditional sort of fine artist has, you know, you have just as much possibility of success. It, it's no longer that kind of, you know, freewheeling gold rush thing that happened in the 60s and 70s with the music business.
1: No. Which is great, really, that you, you've been part of that, really, and you, you can sort of look back on that and, uh, you know, you've been witness to those changing times. Just to go on to the um, the Liars album, Todd, um, because that really, I have to say, having known your name, and I mean, it's a terrible thing to say, perhaps, that, but I'm sure it applies to, to quite a few people, but you hear one album that suddenly turns you onto an artist and then you start investigating all the back catalogue. And that's what, exactly what happened with myself, really, last year with Liars. Um, brilliant album, one that we, we push very hard on the website in terms of promotion, review and everything. Has it been a generally good reaction to the album?
0: Um, oh, yeah, the album got, you know, un, unexpectedly, in my case, you know, a, a lot of attention and a whole lot of great reviews and best ofs of the year, citations and that kind, of, which is um, which is not something you actually can strive for, you know, like... You can try and make people like what you're doing, one way or another, but you can't guess where people's heads are going to be at. by But right. music actually, you know, reaches their ears, which is, you know, has been one of the big problems with uh, a top-heavy music industry, where, um, you know, an artist like, uh, if, if we can put out of our mind all of his, all of his latter-day problems, but Michael Jackson, you know, at one point. He and everyone else thought that every time he put an album out, it would sell 20 million copies. But it's just inevitable that either you know, people will lose interest in you or people will lose interest in the medium. Mm. Or you know, the style becomes stale. You know? And when he came out with a record, that essentially was like all of his previous records. Um, the tastes of the audience had start- started to move on and so you take three years to make a record by the time people hear it you know they've got gone completely on to some other thing and and think that what you're doing is just the most passé thing people are going to react to record most people aren't familiar with the history of the recordings that i've done to this they only remember the last one which for most people in britain might be no world order since i came and toured behind that or it might be something Further back, and even much further back. <laughs> you know, have, uh, no perspective on on uh, on what's happened in the intervening time between the last album they remember and this one. So it may seem as if you know every album was perhaps as involved as this one, or or was less uh, uh, less accessible in
1: some way. Would you call it a concept album? At all? Well,
0: it 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 was a concept only. In that all of the songs were about the same, uh, uh, about the same overall topic, but there was no attempt to, uh, aside from having a certain kind of atmosphere overall about the record, there was no attempt to conceptualize the music beyond that. It was not. I, I wasn't trying to make, push it either towards techno or towards something else. That it would just drift there as a natural. Uh, natural result so it's stylistically uh eclectic took me about six months for to do most of it there were a couple of songs that had been done before that and and the problem was it took me so long between songs because i was just trying i was trying to do a whole song and finish it and i came to realize that you know this may be a good way of working for some some people but it's not the best way of working for myself i have to essentially just block out the time, block out the six months, as it turned out for this record. Uh, I did have a few other things to do in, you know, it within that period, but for the most part, say, okay, now I'm going to start this record, and I'm going to work on it until it's finished. I'm not going to take a break uh, or, sh- or shelve it for a while or anything like
3: that. <laughs> and I don't know whether
0: you're that, absolutely sure how long that'll ever take once, once you start that process. But for me, it was no longer a question of simply writing a song and finishing a song at a time. I had to write a dozen songs and work on and finish a dozen songs at a time.
1: So, so you're saying that it really you worked on it pretty solidly for six months.
0: Yeah, yeah. I had you know a little. I had some touring obligations to sprinkled within there, but I would say that at least a good four months of it was just solid work on the record.
3: Yeah, and I
0: could say that an album like *The Individualist* had a concept on it that um, would have made it, in a in a uh, traditional commercial sense, less programmable. Let's say you put something on the radio because the songs were like seven and eight minutes long and weren't structured in in a normal sort of verse-chorus-verse-chorus verse, chorus way uh, for the most part, uh, and then the records uh, before that, for instance, No World Order, was was infinitely,
3: <laughs>
0: infinitely inaccessible in some sense, because it was uh, based around the concept of the music not being the same way every time you listen to it. Mm. So there were uh, millions of combinations, some of which may have been accessible, some of which may have been in, in completely inaccessible. So
1: was that actually that was available on a CD-ROM, wasn't it? The
0: well, yeah, they, that was actually supposed to be the ideal format to, to listen to it in, because you would be able to impose uh, uh, sort of filters and restrictions or certain desires about what was performed and. The nature of the uh, of the sound of what was performed. In other words, for any particular four-bar section of the music, there would be you know the full sort of mixed version. There would be versions with uh, no vocals on. There would be instruments pulled out, you know, uh, so that you could say that you wanted to listen to the karaoke version of the record. It would play only the only the bits that had no vocals on them.
1: Right. So, Fascinating, uh, and and again ahead of its time. But you say that one, it's not actually available, is it, because of the, it's deleted, is it, Todd?
0: Yeah, well, it was done for, you know, what are now, I guess, obsolete platforms, and there was no impetus to redo it all, though I still have all of the elements that went into that. Um, and I actually did implement an online version of it, you know, where people could... Uh, control what was played, but it was all streamed. I mean, the idea of doing uh, these sort of fixed media com- uh, uh, commoditized type uh, products is yeah. actually—it's already obsolete. Keep doing—we keep doing it because there's still a market for it. Yeah, but everyone realizes at this point that it's going to be a world of. You know, wireless iPods <laughs> some point, you know, essentially where everything's just being beamed at you, you know, it's what you want to uh, to capture and listen to.
4: You know, we could have a whole interview really, Todd, about your production work, but a lot of people will know you for your work with the likes of Meatloaf and the original Bat Out of Hell album, but when it comes down to your own um, personal preferences, I mean, are you as interested in the, the technical side of the music-making as much as the actual creative, you know, playing the instruments? Has it always been a, a 50-50 split? Because um, c- I think people have that image of you as someone who's who embraces technology, really.
2: Um, I think that that is uh, uh, somewhat of a misinterpretation. It's not that I uh, have a p- predilection to embrace technology. I have a comfort level with technology that... Most people probably don't have yeah i am un i am un i am unintimidated by technology, which is completely different from like being enthralled with it
3: mm. i
2: don't own a cell phone, i don't drive a car <laughs> I have other priorities that supersede any of my technological fascination, for instance, I know people who think that I am eternally available to them, therefore i don't own a cell phone. Mm. And that wasn't a technological decision, you know, even though everyone expects you to have a cell phone. Mm. um, I find the level of technology that I'm comfortable with. As a matter of fact, I'm talking to you now on my Skype phone, which essentially is my laptop. Oh, yes. So I do have a phone number that I can travel around with me, but it's not going to ring in some inconvenient place. And I'm not going to be tempted to put my business on the street by talking on, on the cell phone in the airplane cabin so everybody can hear me. You know? Sounds a good idea that. I don't yeah. know what I don't know what's wrong with people sometimes in the technol technology that they blindly adopt.
4: Now what about when you come to produce yourself, Todd? Because um I mean who you, for instance, who do you use as a sounding board? Are you that person or how does that work for you? I have this vision of you working in solitary and I know that's probably totally wrong but um do, do you oh, ever totally
3: right. in some some
4: far distant place with your computer. But, I mean, how would you get... Because it's nice to get people to, you know, to place stuff to people. and I mean, I suppose you've got your sons or whatever, but but how would you get a reaction to the work that's in progress?
2: I don't. Ah. I I don't ask people... First of all, I put myself in the other person's place. Yes. Who is going to tell me, honestly, (laughs) in the first place? You know, who's going to think, you know, oh, I... Well I can hear it, I know better of what he should be doing than that. I mean, after all this time. Yes. I you know a lot of what I've accomplished in my life I will fully admit has been through intimidation. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think my kids would be the great people they are unless I had every once in a while intimidated them. And and you know, a lot of what I accomplish I have to accomplish through subtle intimidation. Um even musically. And in that sense, you know, I don't want want to ever put anyone in the position where they have to try to um, not only judge what I'm doing, but try and figure out a way to tell me their opinion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. In a way that they perceive won't offend me or whatever. Yes, but difficult. beyond that, the, the, I can't create without solitude. Right. And that's why, you know, it, it it's, exclusive to have, having someone like over your shoulder and and offering opinions and stuff the ideas won't come to me unless i shut out all other input and uh when i was getting to the more critical parts of this record that's exactly what i did i went to another house where nobody was set up the microphone in the linen closet <laughs> you know <laughs> and i you know and only i choose what input i will have I'd probably sit there watching a you know, major league baseball game in high depth and not caring at all what it's about, just letting my mind drift off for a little while until it starts to tell me what it wants me to do. <laughs> and if there's distractions of any kind, that process can never start. So, you know, for any number of practical reasons, no, I, I work in solitude.
3: Mm. And
2: that doesn't mean I can't collaborate, and it doesn't mean that I won't involve other people in the performance of the music. But in terms of the competition of the music, um, I'm never interested in anybody else's opinion. Let the chips fall where they may. <laughs> <You
4: know. laughs> well, that's fine. that works for you. Because uh, I noticed you haven't... I don't think you've used other musicians on this new album. I think you did have, like, for instance, you had... Um, did you have a sax player? Was that a keyboard player,
2: didn't you, on live? I had a couple of guests I had a couple of guests on live. I would have had guests on this record if I had the time or the circumstance to put them on, but unlike wires, I had a deadline on this record. And if the musician wasn't around, I had to either just change what I wanted to do or try and do it myself.
4: Well, it's come out great, I have to say, Todd, and uh, we're almost up to our time level here, but um if I can ask you just briefly, well, what's happening with Patronet at the moment?
2: Well, we were actually ready for a relaunch last year. Right. And then Vista came out. And since still yes. most of the people who own a computer own a uh, you know a, a non Mac system. Yes. Everything that we thought was working stopped working. Huh. Now uh problem there is that you know patronet is uh aside from whatever it is conceptually it's also a uh, software development thing and a you know and a maintenance thing and when something like that happens we just don't have the resources to throw at it like um like somebody who sole business is to be on the internet
3: yeah and
2: so it it kind of like caused us to reboot in a bit and i think that As time allows, we're going to try and get it back up again. I still think it's something that um, that differentiates itself from uh, from the typical sort of website or the MySpace or the other thing. You know, we have a higher, we always had a higher level of priority uh, of of privacy and and selective connectivity, (laughs) you know, selective interaction, things like that. You know, just try to you know, to not so much build a successful business model as try and always define the experience that people want to have. Yeah, I um, know. So I think it's so worthy, and um, and hopefully you'll find the resources to get back, you know. The success in one area, like if this album's very successful, it creates success in other areas. Exactly, so. that's
4: right. I and mean, can I just tell, because listeners would want to know, really, this Patronette, was that always a vehicle for your, like... Um you know and release material video that sort of thing
2: well i've always believed that you know as the record company model was breaking down you know, which was the principal source of financing for artists that you could in one way cut out the middleman and make and not necessarily make <laughs> you know make your fans uh the replacement of of that principal source of financing. In other words, if they were going to pay at the end of the process, they could pay at the beginning of the process, and what they get in return is at least some sort of, at the very least, some sort of progress report, and at the best, you know, a a kind of a look over the shoulder at what's happening. But, you know, the fine line there has always been, are you going to spoil it for them by letting them see it when it's not finished?
4: Yes, that's right. And I
2: think trying to figure out the best way to do that—you know—be able to get a look at the process, but not actually hear what's happening. Yeah. (laughs) In a sense, so it'll all be kind of surprise that everybody wants. You know, those are the things that it was meant to to try and discover. It wasn't supposed to turn into a giant marketing thing.
3: No, Uh, I know.
2: Uh, a place where we could, you know, refine the experience that people wanted with the artists that they like.
3: Oh,
4: yeah. Well, fingers crossed it gets back and running in the future. And just to finish off, Todd, um, you tend to keep uh, audiences guessing about your set lists whenever you you tour. Um, Can you give us any sort of little hint about what you'll be thinking about in November? I mean, obviously you'll be featuring the new album, but can we expect a fair fair cross-section of your old stuff as well?
2: Uh, yeah, but it will be by definition very guitar centric, whatever it is.
4: that sounds extremely yeah. good
2: <laughs> will have, you know, there'll be keyboard tinkling here and there, but we're really going to feature the guitars on this. I
4: think this is going to be fantastic. It's what I was hoping you were going to do a couple of years ago, but I think uh I'm glad that you've fed off other you know sort of you've had the the feedback from people and uh I think as you say, it's true that people do remember you as um the guitar player in in the seventies, I suppose it was really, and uh, it's nice to see that you're you're getting back to it, Todd. Really.
2: Well, um, don't mess with success. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, best don't
3: of you. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> well, look,
4: best of luck for uh, the forthcoming dates in the autumn, and uh, with the album out in September, we'll be uh, li- listening out for that and playing it on Get Ready to Rock. And thanks for talking to us, Todd.
2: Thank you. Talk to you soon.